Hello and welcome to Fresh Air. I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And I'm Matthijn. I'm Chris. And I'm Andy. And tonight we continue our venture into political ethics with the question of justice. What is justice? Martin, what is justice? Is it simply fairness? Um, well, there's a lot of different theories. And, well, which one do we want to start with? There are a number of different theories that we can go through about what justice actually is, whether we're speaking of it being one of the cardinal virtues or Kantian justice, Woolseyan justice, Platonic justice, Aristotelian justice, utilitarian justice, justice simply as a form of fairness, or uh, Nuzick's entitlement theory. There are so many different ones that we can go through, but let's basically go through the list. So let's just start with justice as one of the cardinal virtues. Okay, well, sure. Um, justice as cardinal virtue would mean um, that you're basically uh, decision-making all the time. And funny enough, in ancient virtue ethics, it would indeed be fairness, and you would be unfair at both sides of the spectrum, like we talked about in the virtue ethics episode. So it, it's sort of applying virtue ethics to a larger scale, rather than being inwardly at the person it's inwardly at the political party um well at political decision making not at the party itself uh you would basically be uh, well the best way it would work in a political environment would be to say well we're just gonna base everything on merit and we are going to educate the people who make that decision in virtue ethics which of course i foresee catastrophe to be honest would that be because they would be missing prudence or just catastrophic in general? Well, my judgment of what is fair is different than your judgment of what is fair, even if we are both equally educated on the virtue of justice. So, whereas one person with 500 euros on his bank account would get a certain grant, another wouldn't, and you could see that if that mounts with different kinds of grants and different kinds of taxes etc well you'd be grossly exa exaggerating the disparity of income for instance so you you'd say in general you don't think justice as a virtue works in politics at all not that i know of uh, you could say that you would have um one legislator or body of legislators that all use justice as a cardinal virtue in deciding what they what they do but yeah i, I ha i'm having a hard time unifying that with an actual virtue cool does anyone have any questions on that before we move on nope excellent okay so next we'll move on to kantian justice which is the preservation of human dignity and like you mentioned when you took us through Kantian ethics it's basically respecting uh, a person as an end in themselves rather than a means to an end is that about right yes it certainly is yeah so how would that work in politics in itself because it sounds quite individual is that a case of the government can't treat anyone as an end so like your workforce your your miners who are getting your coal yeah yeah or or is there something that i'm missing from that 
Well, you would basically be ruling with your constituents at the forefront of your thought all the time. So I think that you would be less inclined to grant personhood, legal personhood, to companies like we have done now, and would focus more on more persons, basically. And yeah, I'm having a bit bit of trouble really understanding how this would translate. And I know that Dave has read a lot more Kant and about Kant than I have, so maybe he's better equipped to explain it. Yeah, sure. One of the things about Kantian justice is the idea that there are certain duties that are unquestionable when it comes to humans, and that's what the preservation of dignity kind of means. So there are certain categorical imperatives, like you cannot torture them, you cannot use them for slave labor. Think of something along the lines of human rights, and that's the sort of idea that Kant puts forward as an idea of justice. So it's not necessarily putting the individual ahead of the corporation then? It is because you wouldn't see a corporation in terms of personhood and you wouldn't see a person as a means for that corporation to make profit. That person is an individual with specific rights, specific working rights, labor rights, that kind of thing. So things like the government making it legal for zero hour contracts would be against the Kantian justice it would because the person can't necessarily make a living on a zero hour contract they have certain rights to housing food you know that kind of thing say housing food education and the right to afford an education so a zero hour contract wouldn't guarantee them that and therefore we should be looking at proper workers rights it could also mean a complete overhaul of the system in which housing, education, etc. would be uh, guaranteed by the government. And you would basically still get a zero-hour contract, but those things would not be in jeopardy, which would be, yay, socialism. The way I was looking at it with the zero-hour contract thing is that on a zero-hour contract, you still can be guaranteed your 40-hour work week, but because you're technically contracted for zero hours, it gives you fewer workers' rights and gives more power to the company or corporation to manipulate or mistreat you as opposed to if you had a proper full-time working contract. That's how I was approaching it as in the giving the precedence to the corporation instead of the individual. And yeah, that's exactly how it worked how it would work. We would be looking more at the rights that the worker has than the rights that a corporation has to exploit that worker. Because by exploiting that worker, they're seeing them as a means to an end rather than an end in themselves. Yeah, awesome. socialism. Sorry. <laughs> so it sounds, in a way, Kantian justice is definitely one that is more looking out for the people. I mean, it is, as, as described, the preservation of human dignity. So are there any key issues that you see with this? Let's start with uh, our favorite thing these days, the economy. Yay! 
when you don't guarantee certain companies certain rights that are equal to or exceed the rights of uh, the individuals working at the company, companies will not really be ready to establish themselves in your country because, well, every part of doing business will be a legal liability. What if every country operated this form of justice, though? Uh, yeah, but they're not, are they? Uh, no, 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 of course. But I, I'm just thinking, you know, as we're going through these, if we come across one that would be uh, the most ethical form of justice you know which one would it be and this one seems like it's looking after the people i mean we've only done two so far so we may get down the list and find uh a, a, another one that is actually even better for the people in general but if we were to say the entire world has to adopt one form of justice would that be the the issue okay so well in that case there's another possible objection to dancing justice which is the question, when can we say that we have adequately preserved human dignity? I suppose then you have to go down the lines of what is dignity. You would, yeah. But one, one of the things that springs to mind is uh, we can say that dignity is guaranteeing the opportunity, at least, of having the basics met for your, for your subsistence. But that would, yeah... I, I can see how this idea would do that, but I, I don't think, yeah. Would it not also complicate things because the measure of dignity would potentially change within different cultures? So even if we did say that the Kantian justice was the best way to do it, to get rid of the different workers' rights and laws in countries, because those different countries would have different cultures and therefore different ways of valuing dignity, it would still create different environments that could be taken advantage of by corporations just as it can now in a different way. Yeah, that's sort of the point of the categorical imperative idea behind it. It's sort of like human rights, where there is just a list of inalienable, inviolable rights. And these would apply across all cultures to all people. So we'd, we'd reach an absolute standard of what dignity is everywhere, regardless of what the culture thought. Is that basically what you're saying there, Dave? Yeah, sort of. I mean, Chris does make a good point, and it is one of the it sort of represents one of the criticisms of the Kantian idea of justice in that it doesn't necessarily take how the real world is into account. I suppose that's the same sort of thing with the, the, the moral theory that we were discussing, though, where it was quite absolutionist. Uh, and if everybody did this, then it would be bad. So therefore, no one can do it. And actually, there's the odd occasion where that might be the best course of action to take, because not doing it would be worse overall. Yeah, basically, um, one of the ideas is, say, the trolley problem, or the ticking time bomb problem, where if you switch the track you kill one person switch the track don't switch the track you kill five according to Kantian justice you have no right to sacrifice the one to save an extra four but in the real world we would tend to think that it 
it is right to switch the track or in the case of the ticking bomb, the idea that we could get the placement of a, a time bomb that's going to go off and kill millions of people if we torture somebody. Kantian justice says that it would never be right to torture this person, but in the real world, sometimes it might be necessary for that to happen. It's those kind of scenarios that show that it doesn't particularly take the real world into account. It's a very good idea, human right, you know, nobody should mock human rights and they are a necessity, but to have an absolutist approach, there needs to be nuance. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the key issues we found with all forms of deontological moral theories, wasn't it? The fact that the following a set of rules being what it is, is what, what actually the problem was, it didn't allow for the nuance. You had to go through the effort of trying to change the rules to then be able to do it, by which time, uh, you know, the people on the tracks would have died. <laughs> yeah, the thing with something like Kantian justice and the categorical imperatives is that these rules cannot be changed. So... Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So that 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 makes it even uh, <laughs> makes it even more problematic than say something like rule utilitarianism. Obviously, I'm jumping back to our moral theory episodes. Awesome. Okay, cool. Does anyone have any more questions about Kantian justice before we move on? I'm good. We covered my slight query and objection. All good. It's one of those things that is a, a nice idea, but there's just unfortunately it's too absolutionist and doesn't allow for nuance yeah rigid and also sorry for jumping in martin no you're you're very welcome like i said i have really neglected Kant. so so next tonight we have rulesian justice aka distributive justice so that is basically the fair and equal distribution of goods now that includes more than physical goods it's also rights protections and educations so martin does that that mean that absolutely everybody should get the same of everything there shouldn't be maybe like paid education that works harder everybody's education should be exactly the same as everyone else's um not really uh what what Rolf basically says is that everybody needs to have an equal chance um he, he compares it in a as a race in this source uh that he says like Imagine you have a 50 meter dash. Some people born rich and probably or maybe very talented, they will start at the 35 meter mark. While somebody who has a disability may start like well before the starting line. So what Rolf really wants to do is to make sure that every runner can have a chance to win. So. Uh, maybe we should place that person with a disability at the 40 meter line and maybe we should weight the shoes of the person starting at the 35 meter line because he has all these advantages. So this is basically the difference between equality and equitability, yes? I have always gotten confused when, when those terms were used, so you will have to explain exactly those terms to me please i would but you basically just described them exactly as i understand them anyway so equality it's... would be so everybody out on the, the the starting line everybody would be at the exact same start line and uh equitability would be if someone has problems walking 
then they'd be a little bit further ahead. If someone you know doesn't have any legs, they'd be right near the, the finish line so that they can pull themselves along with their arms. It's almost giving an advantage to someone that's disadvantaged to balance it. In fact, a golf might be a good Death. analogy for it, right? not it? Because you've got your handicap. So if someone has a better handicap than you, uh, so someone maybe have a three and you've got like a, a 20, at the end of it, you balance it out and you know <laughs> you end up adjusting your scores based on your handicap and go aha well yes actually you might have won based on the score but i due to the handicap i actually beat you by you know two shots there's a nice illustration that i've seen uh, i'm kind of half remembering it but it's like there's a seven foot tall fence there's a six foot guy and a four foot guy stood next to it for equality, they both get a two-foot-tall box, which means for the six-foot guy can see over the top, but the four-foot guy can't. With equitability, they both get a box of a height which allows them to both see over. Yeah, that that sounds right. I have purposefully kept uneducated about the elitist and frankly wasteful sport of golf, but yeah, that does both sound right. Wasn't it Mark Twain who said that Golf's a perfectly good way to ruin a nice walk. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, I, I, I don't even know why they regard it as a sport. <laughs> it's not a sport, it's a practice. And Tiger Wood is a hobby. <laughs> a very, very, yeah, very well-paid one, <laughs> yeah. Well, we may yet be if our listeners would support us on Patreon. Hashtag pluggable. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, the way Rolf wants to achieve this is basically a social contract. What he uh, supposes we do is that we look at the world with what he calls the veil of ignorance, which basically means that uh, we all step back and we imagine ourselves in different layers and in different circumstances within society and to envision what we would need to have an, uh, have an equal shot at making our lives a success. I've actually heard of that veil of ignorance thing before. I wasn't expecting to come across stuff tonight, which actually rings a bell. But yeah, that's the idea of what do you think everybody should get regardless of being, or regardless of putting yourself in a position of one of the receivers. Yeah? Yeah. So for instance, if I'm a multimillionaire, I would say that I would need a tax increase. And when I am horribly um, handicapped, I would say that I should get the ability to be taken care of, uh, be taken care of, to have something meaningful to do with my life, etc, etc. I mean, again, it sounds like it's, I mean, this sounds even better than the, the, the Kantian one. And it sounds very socialist in nature as well. It seems like it's about looking after everybody to not just an equal, but also fair level and helping those who are less fortunate. So if you come from a, a poorer background, but you're particularly bright, you're not necessarily overlooked because you can still get into this school that someone who's rich might have to pay thousands to get into, but you might not have to. You've just got the, the, the brain power to get there. And, and, and when it but comes to the brain to think... power is, is, is also an, uh, one of these... It's, it's, a, it's, a, oh, it's the gift, isn't it? What's the, what's the word? It's your um, advantage. So you want to 
I know you obviously won't have the money, but what you were speaking about earlier is is when you've got a gift, that's obviously an advantage to you. So you wanted to make people equal. So what, what about the people that are that are less gifted intellectually as well as as well as uh, financially? How, how how could you boost that, or why would you want to? Would that be along that's the lines point. of giving people? Um, you know people learn in different ways one of the biggest issues with the education system is it's a memory game yeah so much of it is recycle this bullshit right you know sit down shut up copy off the board and it's you know some some people can do very well because they can remember or they can revise and basically they get given a question and they know the answer they might not understand the answer though and that goes back to our knowledge question do they really know it but they know how to recycle the information to give them that a grade because they've memorized what it is even if they don't actually have the understanding to apply said knowledge and there are other people that maybe they just didn't get it in the way it was explained or they were just disinterested because they weren't engaged and so I suppose part of this would be giving people the right education for them and maybe for some people yeah exactly so not only matching different people's learning styles like you mentioned there but also some people are would benefit from something far more vocational, uh, something far more hands-on to start with. There might be people that actually won't benefit from the education system. Maybe they will never be able to do algebra for whatever reason. They might have tried every different type of learning style. It just doesn't click with them. But actually, you give them uh, you know, a saw and a bit of wood and they've made you a table. And it's the most beautiful table you've ever seen. And actually, why send them through 18 years of education, not including the potential for university if they decide to do it, when actually from the age of 12, this person's making these amazing uh, sculptures or, or, or whatever that, that, that actually suits them. And this is where we kind of uh, we're touching on instead of having equal opportunities, equality of outcome instead, which is probably not what not ideally achievable, purely because some people uh, they should have the option to be able to do certain jobs, but they're never going to do them in a thousand years. Yeah. Well, we could get into Marxism if we want. Sorry, Dave. Go ahead. That's all right. Um. I was just going to say the the way Rawls sees it as working is that we should imagine we do not know what skin color we have, um, the ability, our ability to gain an education, um, our economic level. We should discard all that we think we might achieve and imagine that we are the most unprivileged um, and poorest and imagine that we can't achieve um, and we can't make money, how would we want the society to treat us in, in order to have a fair sort of life? And that, that's basically what Rawls is thinking with this. It's imagine if you were the bottom of the rung how would you want society to treat you? So it, it's not necessarily as much about the outcome. It is the the start you should be given based on what rung of the ladder you are on at the start. 
It's it giving everyone a level platform to to start from. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, um, and the kind of rights you would want in that situation, it, it's it's more about that. Uh, cool. That's fair enough. It it still sounds um like quite fair in it in itself. Uh, I suppose I put I assumed additional nuance to it than it actually had. Um, considering outcomes instead of the start. But yeah, it's still I still like the idea of trying to give everybody a fair start and bring everybody up to a level pegging. Um, well, there is some sense of out outcome because part of it is the things you would need to be able to lead a, at least a reasonable life. Yeah, that's fair. That makes sense. And um, Rawls is very interesting and very much worth looking into. He's one of the most popular philosoph political philosophers in the last 50 years. So um, just circling back a little bit, could we say that it's not so much everybody should be given the same opportunity to get the same education, but that no matter what level of education you get, you should have the same rights regardless? Yeah, pretty much. Would it also potentially award more rights to people who have a much worse start? It could do, uh, if you could make a rational argument for it. Um, but as it's about the fair and equal distribution of things that are good, then no. I would have said that that would probably come down to they're not getting more rights, they're getting more help to achieve the same rights. That's basically how it's seen. It, it's about how it, it's simply about how you would want to be treated if you were in the worst position in that society, how the kind of help, the kind of rights, the kind of things you would need to be able to at least live a productive life, one where you're not starving, you have shelter, that kind of thing. I, I suppose you could you could almost say if you want to make it really basic, if you are part of the LGBTQ and whatever other letters are in there now, it gets longer and longer every time I look at it. Um, hey. <laughs> but um, if you were part of that, it would be getting the additional help so that you have the same rights as people who are not so that you can marry, because why shouldn't you be allowed to marry? There's no reason not to be is that yeah because I... god made adam and eve and not adam and steve god's sake joe <laughs> <laughs> well that's the thing in this veil of ignorance scenario i wasn't you... aware of the veil of ignorance uh yeah I... in the veil of ignorance scenario you i am would aware be of irony though <laughs> you, you would be imagining that you were a member of the lgbtq community because they are one of the most disadvantaged they are one of the most and discriminated against so you would you would imagine that you were one of those people um, and you would build a set of rights and sort of circumstances to help you if you were in that position and consider yourself lucky but you have to imagine it basically oh, that sounds it does sound pretty cool it does sound pretty fair actually um, to, throw, to throw an alt-right spanner in the works um play, de play devil's advocate why shouldn't people that have worked hard and earned lots of money have better op have uh, can why can't they give their children better uh, op educational opportunities there's nothing in roles that says they can't 
Yeah, it's not that they can't be given better education. It's that that better education doesn't mean they have more rights as a human than somebody with a lesser education. Uh, so it's more, so I'm thinking of it, it's, is, is that the person that's uh, more financially well off? Is it, will they see it as fair as that they've worked hard? um to to earn this money to pay for the education where someone else that maybe hasn't worked so hard or whatever um they can still send their people uh, their children to um this uh, to get a similar education they there's in the way it's thought of you would imagine getting an education necessary to give you at least a fighting chance that doesn't necessarily mean that those who have worked hard can't study harder or get a slightly better education in the hopes of furthering themselves. But you would um, you would imagine that you would at least deserve a reasonable education. To so it's help okay. You. I see what you mean. So it's like a it's more like a basic level of of education or a, a certain standard that um, that everyone should be able to achieve. Uh, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Can I throw in an analogy here? Imagine instead of education, say it was true that everybody had the right to a car. Now, the government will provide you a Peugeot 106. Now, if you've worked really, really, really hard, you're still allowed to buy a Ferrari. But that doesn't stop those people from being given their Peugeot 106. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Oh, well, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm not really alt right. So, I mean, I was kind of on board with it anyway. But I, was just I don't to, believe you, you know. anymore. <laughs> They're on to me. But yeah, does also, that analogy work for you, Dave? Yep, that works perfectly. Also, in the interest of combating the alt right, um, mostly the people who work uh, the least hard are the richest. So that's because they work smart, not hard. No, no, that's it's, because it's they because inherit. Of, yeah, they because they inherit and because of reasons. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Well, I think we've um, gone quite into depth on that one. I quite like uh, Wolsey and Justice. Is there anything else we need to know about it before we move on? I want to know if there's any real valid objections to it, because I can't think of any, and I'm normally quite good at being a contrarian prick. Wait until we get to the discussion of Nozick, and then there will be some objections to Rolsian justice. Cool. I, I can imagine that there'd be an issue with it if you're a bit of a libertarian. Um, uh, but I'll hold off like Dave suggests till we get to Nozick. You did just hit the nail right on the head, though. Way! Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I got something right. I'm happy. <laughs> Even a broken Even... clock is right twice a day. <laughs> How nice of you to save that those one of those two times for us. <laughs> well, do you know what? It's the first time today, so maybe there will be a second time throughout this chapter. <laughs> yeah, or maybe you'll be tending to Ivy and you, you just say something that's okay. <laughs> Lost right. forever. Oh. Right, moving on. <laughs> Platonic justice, the idea that the three parts of society split into workers, leaders and guardians work together in order to produce a fair society. 
So, Martin, uh, can you expand on that a little bit further for us? Um, yeah, well, um, the idea Plato puts forth in the Republic is basically that he, uh, like you said, splits society into three sorts of people. I believe he uses bronze, silver, and gold to describe them, which I find odd due to the value context, but still. Um, anyway, uh, he says that the gold people should, from uh, their birth to their inevitable leadership, be uh, well-versed in, surprisingly, philosophy. And the silver people, they should, they would be the guardians, and those would be, uh, well, city guards, uh, soldiers, which were at the time, of course, the same people, but still, police officers, uh, and the like, and they would, uh, from their birth on, be trained in both recognizing the laws uh, and enforcing them, but also simply in combat for, well, when war comes. And the last category would be the bronze category, and that would be, the, well, the workers. They would simply from an early age on begin working, basically slaving away for, well, the good of society. This actually sounds like a couple of things I've read in books. Uh, have you guys read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? Yeah, one of my favourite books. Absolutely fantastic. I need to get a, a copy of it. Uh, any any of the rest of you? I did start I at did one point. parts of it in school. Fair. Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of my favourite books and I don't own it anymore. I don't know. I lost it in a move. I've probably read it through three times and they were all in my teenage years and I need to read it again with my head on but it had a big impact on me anyway now this idea of the three parts of society I think in Brave New World they they separated it into five or six parts and you had your alphas betas gammas epsilons deltas or something like that and they're obviously everybody's cloned and they have put you into different orders and obviously if you're an alpha you're super intellectual uh your your betas you're intellectual but you're supporting the alpha with some of their tasks you're doing slightly more menial stuff anyway it goes down and basically you get to your your epsilons who virtually brain dead workers who spend their time just mopping or, or cleaning out gas tanks or doing anything like that is there sort of a, a similarity between the two there i'm actually being shocked about the similarity uh between the brave new world and what we have now to be honest uh, <laughs> basically just without social mobility not you um anyway well, yeah the, the lack of social mobility and uh the rigid ordering of things that that would be uh yeah <clears throat> that that would coincide with this theory with the exception uh, that Plato, I believe, in uh, the Republic also uh, says that when a child shows talent to, for instance, be thoughtful or talented in philosophy, that they should immediately be moved up to gold status. Right, so it's not necessarily that they're in some form of caste system like you might get in Hinduism. You're born into this family, therefore you have to become a doctor or you have to be a shop worker or whatever. They did allow a little bit of nuance of, oh, they were born into the worker family, but actually this person's really bright and shows aptitude for philosophy, so maybe we should move them up to, as you say, the gold standard or the leaders. I mean, this sounds like a really, really, really good system if you're an ant. 
like, there's the queen, there's the workers, there's the drones, get on with your fucking life, off you go, chap. Yeah, well, the premise of Plato is that of the perfect city, or translated to the perfect nation for now. And, uh, well, you can say a lot, but it does sort of do that. We could even throw it back to uh, Douglas Adams, where they got rid of a third of their 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 race the useless workers that they 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 thought of basically all the people that were the telephone hand sanitizers and the the hairdressers and everything like that and it it actually turned out that because they got rid of this third and they just had the the more highbrow people and the you know that the leaders and the guardians that actually they ended up being wiped out by a disease on a telephone handle and i thought not only does that work quite well with this whole thing that if you did lose say a third of this particular society then it would fall apart but actually with the pandemic that's going on right now uh <laughs> all these workers who for ages have been told they're not worth anything and they're just minimum wage and their job anyone can do etc are now considered essential workers and we really need them to be putting their lives at risk so that they can serve people their groceries and things like that yeah basically but well the rhetoric now is mainly just meant to keep you hostage anyway yeah what platonic justice uh, tries to do is to order society in such a way that everybody is productive and that society itself can prosper and there, there's a lot of criticisms to be launched against this but just for a moment i beg you to imagine a world in which our leaders were actually educated in leading that would really be a lot better Uh, or in the case of some of them educated yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah although how does this particular system work for those who might be disabled or unable to work for some particular region or for example vagrancy and and things like that correct me if i'm wrong but i believe in those times those people just died Right, but I mean, if we were to apply it to today, if we were to say this is how we're going to get society to work, what would happen to vagrants or the disabled, you know, or people who were suffering a mental illness that meant that they they couldn't be in public or or, or whatever? Yeah, but the point is we don't really have an answer to that because Plato never even considered those people because, again, they just tended to die. So it's something that doesn't work today it might have worked in an an ideal society where there's plenty of healthy people with you know philosopher kings as your leaders <laughs> people brought into the world as guardians who were trained from the start and uh, if you weren't part of those two you were a worker and you were working and there is no vagrancy there is no mental illness and that's sort of the only situation where it would work well, it doesn't necessarily not work, but you would have to add on to it. So you would have to make, for instance, a fourth class of people who simply cannot work. And you would have to have a society that is in some way willing to uh, pay for the care for those people. What would they have done at those times for people who were too old to continue working? Because surely you could extend that group to encompass the disabled and the sick. They would become 
part of the cared for, which I imagine is what they would have done with the elderly then, no? I think that uh, the elderly would be provided for by uh, their their children, etc. And that the sick people, they would also provide jobs and uh, eventually, hopefully, be patched up so that they can continue working. So it could become that they were taken care of through familial responsibility as opposed to governmental. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I completely disagree with this as a system, but I'm just trying to figure out how you could account for, as Joe was saying, the ill and the disabled who can't work. And I think that's the only way I can try and apply it in the same way to that system. Yeah, well, I think I think that would work the way I just laid it out. Uh, I'm not sure if it's explicitly addressed, though I imagine it is, because Plato does have a reputation for being... Uh, fairly complete in all his uh, in all his dialogue it's been a long time since i read it like three years or so i was just going to say it might be worth devoting an entire episode to a discussion of the republic and because it's quite a big dialogue that contains many parts many arguments and both me and Martin could probably do with a, a reasonable refresher before getting into it in any great detail. Yeah, I'd need like two months so that I can read it. Your time starts now. <laughs> bing, okay, well, bing, that's bing. it for tonight. Goodbye. <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, is there anything else we need to know about this, or does anyone have any more questions before we move on? No, all good. Awesome. So next we move on to Aristotelian justice, which came in sort of two forms, distributive and commutive. Can you expand on that a little bit for us, Martin? Okay. Uh, well, distributive is uh, when there is a good to be distributed among those that have a claim on it. And a commutive would be when uh, a person deserves something based on their action. So basically, um, if I kill you, there would be a commutive justice in the sense that, well, I deserve to go to jail. Unless the person deserved to be killed by you for some reason? Yeah, I guess. But then again, no. Uh, I'm, un I'm unclear on the details. It was more of a uh, looking at, say, a debt to be repaid. So if we went for something a little bit more simple, say someone took... 100 euros out of your wallet. First of all, what are you doing carrying cash, man? Fucking hell. You're in the world of contactless payment and you've got 100 euros in your wallet. But that's neither here nor there. Someone takes 100 euros out of your wallet under this commutive sort of thing. Do you have the right to take $100 back? Uh, yeah, because at that point I have a claim to it. So long as you're taking the same $100 back or $100 back from the same person presumably. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because otherwise you start on a weird kind of domino effect of theft, which could be interesting, but probably not sustainable. <laughs> and when we're talking about uh, the, the distributive, you're, you're talking about goods are distributed to those that have a claim on it. Could you expand more by what you mean by having a claim on it? Uh, yeah, sure. Aristotle was known for his teleological ethics, so he would consider uh, somebody who is, for instance, good at playing the flute to have more claim on having one of the limited amounts of flutes 
present than somebody who is not good at playing the flute. So is that someone who's, you know, they're giving away flutes or they're selling flutes? It should go to people that actually can play the flute or have a strong interest in playing the flute over someone that just wants one because they're being given out. Yeah, basically. Because this would eventually be for the good of all the people because they can hear excellent flutistry. Is that a word? I don't know, but it should be. It is now. (laughs) I have a question about this one then that I'm curious about. So if we go by the logic that of that whole flute should be given to those with a better claim to needing the flute, would that then translate to hotels should provide rooms to homeless people before they provide rooms to people with a home? Because the homeless guy has more of a claim to needing a bed. The other guys have already got one. Um, basically, if the if the homeless person is just as capable of paying for it. Okay. So you've got to that balance. That was a lot easier the, than I thought. Well, I suppose you've got to balance the commutive part of the distributive. So if the homeless person can afford to pay for it which they probably couldn't but if they can afford to pay for it then they deserve it more than one of the other customers who has their own home but is just staying there yes exactly it's uh, the distributive part is it, it is tied to a certain uh, amount of things so uh when you are a for-profit business it would still be justified to ask for payment for it as as opposed to just saying like you're homeless, you get a room. You're homeless, you get a room. And be like the Oprah Winfrey of hotels. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't suggesting that for-profit companies should be giving away stuff for free. But, yeah, if both can pay for it, according to that line of justice, they should give it to the homeless guy instead. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. What in a situation where they'd already given it to someone who didn't necessarily need it? but then. Yeah, I mean, is that is that is that a line on it? It's it's no longer available. It's already being given out. You're too late, even though you need it more. Yeah, they already have a claim to it. So, yeah, so their their claim becomes bigger because they've already got it. Therefore, it you know it's not up in the air as to who have it. They actually have it. So therefore, it's theirs. They've got the claim. Cool. I just wanted to clear that up. This particular one sounds like it should be a lot more complex than we're finding it. Are we missing something? Well, the complicated things uh, arise when, of course, both distributive and commutive are mixed. And uh, in real life, this tends to go like, well, three layers deep. So good luck untangling that web. I suppose it also gets particularly complicated when two parties think that they have a stronger claim for the same thing. And how do you measure strength of the claim? Or equally, it's, you know, a, a business will raise their costs to a point where someone who might have less of a claim on it can afford it. But people who actually do have a really strong claim can't actually physically afford it. Like every restaurant in London. <laughs> every pub in London. Man, a pint will set you back and call most of the Everything in London. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Don't forget as well, though, it's not just about physical goods. It's about things like rights, 
education in a similar way to what Rawlsian injustice is. So he has a similar sort of distributive thing as Rawlsian, but a slightly different way of applying it? Yeah, sort of. So can you just give a brief explanation of how that does apply specifically to rights as opposed to a physical thing? Well, if you pay your taxes, you have as much right to the use of the police officer as anybody else. If you don't pay your taxes when you're supposed to, you lose your claim on the right to use the police sort of thing. Cool. So this comes into the whole social contract argument against those wonderful people who I'm not going to mention again. Yeah, it's about political obligations. Cool. I follow that. Thank you. Cool. Okay. So the next form of justice that we're going to be discussing is utilitarian justice. Now, you might remember that from the moral theories where we were talking about act utilitarianism. So it's the consequence of the action defines whether something is just or not. Does it maximize the utility? So how does this really work in politics? Well, basically, yeah. Have you heard of... Shit, I forget the name. Yes. <laughs> Very nice. Well, why don't you explain it then, Chris? Well, basically, what this means is, and then that's where we get to the bit where Martin takes over. God damn you, tricky little devil. <laughs> um, basically, what you uh, would do uh, in politics, if you follow utilitarian justice, is that you make a calculation of sorts and determine what kind of action in regards to a certain question would maximize happiness and pleasure the most or reduce pain and suffering the most. So in a way, is it like the, the moral theory, except where we regard uh, an action that maximizes pleasure and happiness or, or reduces pain and suffering as moral we're referring to it as just it's basically exactly the same thing but we're replacing the word moral with just and immoral with unjust uh yeah basically that's that's what it comes down to and i suppose does it have that same uh consequentialist aspect to it as well where we can't necessarily know if it was just until the consequences actually happened we can still make predictions but we won't know until after what has happened uh, well that is technically true it is the case that when you have large numbers things tend to get a lot more uncertain a lot less uncertain sorry yeah because with larger numbers you can start figuring stuff out based on averages instead of individual response. Yeah? Yeah, exactly. So you'd probably go Kaizen 80-20 rule and uh, say, you know, we're, we're maximizing utility for as many as we can. This is generally the way we're going to go. But equally, if it turns out that that doesn't work out, would you then change the course of what you're you're doing politically? If at all possible, yeah, of course. The issue there being that people are very, very, very bad for falling for sunk cost fallacies. It's like, well, we've started it now. We have to carry on. Yeah, that's true. But in politics, uh, the, the sunk cost fallacy is not necessarily a fallacy. It really depends on, well, 
basically a lot of things like public opinion, the economy itself, because stability is good for the economy and instability is not, etc., etc., etc. So, sunk cost really does play a big role in politics and is not necessarily fallacious. Yeah, that's fair. There are definitely ways where a sunk cost is a valuable thing to consider, as well as there are definitely ways where it's an absolute fallacy. Yeah, of course. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think with every fallacy, there is at times a logical line of thought, isn't there? I mean, the, the whole argument from authority, it's generally because they're not necessarily an authority on the topic right it's they're 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 an authoritative figure but they're not necessarily an authority on the topic and you're making a claim based on what they've said when they don't really have enough knowledge to 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 make the judgment call but there are times when you can call an authority and they are an expert in the field so like you say martin there's times when a sunk cost is actually the right course of action go on then joe justify the straw man also, there's uh, this thing with risk assessment, which is uh, possibly problematic. I, I know uh, I've, I've got a great book, which I recommend all my listeners, What is Justice? by uh, Michael Sandel. And in it, he mentions something that actually happened to, I believe, Ford, but I hope I'm not slandering them right now, that they had a, a gas tank in the back of the car which led to the explosion of the car, right? The Pinto. Uh, Ah, the Pinto. Cool. And what basically happened was that the company made a calculation and said, well, if we are going to recall all these, I believe it was 1.4 million Pintos at that point, and refit them, it it would cost 400 euros per thing. And uh, the chance that people die would basically be like a thousand and they would have to pay a lot less i believe and anyway they they, uh, settled on the policy of just leaving it as it is taking the extra deaths into account simply because well that that would be cheaper and that is one of the risks you can possibly run into in a political level when you're dealing with utilitarian justice. Uh, sort of like in Fight Club, the narrator is a recall coordinator for a major car company. And he basically worked out the the the, the probability of this particular accident happening and the, the cost of the average out-of-court settlement. And if the cost of you know, the, the total number of units that they've sold and the out-of-court set- settlement is less than a cost of the recall, they don't do one. But then aren't we going into an ethical concern there as well? You know, Absolutely. It's not, I was yeah, going to say, I mean, um, with, with uh, financial sector, companies that do similar sort of things would be fined incredibly. You'd also have to think if you were making those calculations about potential loss of earnings in the future if people were to find out that you weren't going to spend money on safety you'd rather just let people get hurt and pay the court fines yeah but the company is still around isn't it yes but potentially not doing as well as they could be 
yeah, they take a huge hit in sales. And like I said, there there could be a governing body that would find them uh, an enormous amount of money, which is something they can't really estimate. Just to um, go back to something Chris asked a, a second ago, he, he was right to pick up on the fact that I said every fallacy, uh, maybe not every fallacy, definitely has a complete justification. I'm just saying that there are some times when things like an argument from authority or a popular argument uh, are necessarily wrong. There can be a justified authority and a, a a false authority and you know just because say Dawkins says something about philosophy doesn't make it true but equally if he has something that comes from a peer-reviewed uh, study about evolution then of course that is generally something that you are more justified in making that argument from authority so the one you wanted me to justify was straw man uh, and and the straw man is where you make an argument out of something that they haven't quite said now in, in that case you're right there is no way to justify that although i can say that there are sometimes in a conversation where you know someone is saying something that they're not saying if that makes sense and yeah you you can put together what the argument they're actually saying. Now you can come back to them and say, is this what you're trying to say? And they could go, no, you're straw manning me, but you're not actually straw manning them. You're trying to elicit what they're getting at through the ambiguity and general nonsensical ramblings that they're going on about to, to try and get to what they actually believe about about the matter but don't want to say i wouldn't class that as a straw man necessarily it would be just trying to clarify what they're saying yeah if it's posed as a question it's seeking clarification it's not attacking something they didn't say but thank you for coming back to it joe i was impressed with that explanation i was looking forward to a full on digging your hills in but damn you it would be much more fun <laughs> I said every, and I meant fucking every. This is how you justify a straw man, you dick. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't be uh, maximising utility by doing that, would I? Ah, oh, come on, there's a patron bonus episode we've got to do one day. We'll just find a way to justify every fucking fallacy we can think of as vehemently <laughs> and stubbornly as possible. Come on, people, you want to pay for it. I want to do it. No, no, no. Tell them you don't want to do it. And then they'll be more inclined to make you do it. If they pay, then you'll do it. Oh, no, I really want to do it. Martin will fucking hate it, though. And he has to be there. He's got no choice. Pay to punish Martin. Yes, please. <laughs> God damn it. So uh, back to utilitarian justice. <laughs> it seems that it is very, very, very similar to to the moral theory. And... Obviously, it would then suffer quite a lot of the same pitfalls as the the moral theory. Uh, so if we were to go with the example where lynching one person who happens to be an innocent to maximize the pleasure and happiness of a thousand people, would that be considered just under utilitarian justice? I think it would. Funny historical side note, they used to do this in France. What, they speak would, about utilitarianism? No, they, they would um, uh, basically sort of randomly pick up people 
and uh, have them beheaded to um, make them fear the king and also to entertain. And then the public started doing it to the royalty so that the king would start to fear them. Swings and roundabouts, really. <laughs> so if we did adopt a form of utilitarian justice, would that put most current political parties around the world out on their backs? Um, what do you mean exactly? Just looking at the way this works, obviously it does suffer quite a lot of pitfalls because of the the whole consequentialism side of it. But if we were to look at all the different parties out there, do we think many of them are actually trying to maximise utility in any way? Um, well, like we said in the introductory chapter, they tend to follow their own moral inclination. But you do see them, for instance, with this COVID epidemic, you do see them sacrificing some of those things for their greater utility. So, for instance, the party that's leading my country now is very much focused on uh, the economy normally. And at this point, they've actually told told a journalist to just fucking gut it out asking about the economy because that doesn't matter right now, which was, well, conspicuous. Surely that was refreshing to hear. It was. On the other hand, if the economy does crash, that does also tend to get some casualties. So I don't think you should take your eye completely off the ball when it comes to that. And they're not, by the way. But... No, no. And I, I doubt any government would be fully taking their eyes off, off the ball on that one, really, would they? I mean, how else will they get paid their overly uh, exuberant checks and allowances yeah exactly cool well is there anything else that we really need to know about utilitarian justice or can we move on well this like david was stressing also does extend to rights so you could make a case that some people would be that the majority of people would be better off if a certain amount of people would for instance, lose their right to live, to life. So that's a big one. Other than that, I'm cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that. So we've got a couple left. I suppose the next one is quite simple. Speaking of justice simply as a form of fairness. I mean, does that really work politically at all? Well, that would really depend on our definition of fairness now, wouldn't it? So are you saying we have multiple definitions of what is fair? Um, in my experience, fairness is more of a feeling than an actual thing. So I would say it's ineffable, but I'm not sure what your opinions on it are. I suppose we come back to the difference between equality and equitability, don't we? There. Uh, yeah, we do. In varying degrees, of course. So <laughs> if we were to decide that justice was what was fair, we then have to decide what fair actually should be measured as. And is there really any clarity anywhere around the world of what fairness really is? We certainly have to measure it from a more objective standpoint than what we personally consider to be fair, because as humans, we are basically programmed to measure the world from our own experience so 
if somebody gets exactly the same thing as us but achieves more with it because we're measuring it from our experience as opposed to the objective nature of it we're likely to not consider that to be fair and it might actually still be unfair because somebody may simply be in a better position to use that thing that is being given exactly so we need to be far more objective in the measure of it than allowing it to be a personal valuation so obviously all we can really give is our personal evaluation but if we had a scales maybe between equality and equitability or something else where would your needle land on what is fair five (laughs) mine would be right over on equitability but i think i've made that quite clear already what about you guys yeah i'm i'm really not sure to be honest mine would be a, a question mark because on one hand, I feel a lot for the more socialist thing, but I do understand that that might make the proverbial cake a lot smaller. So are you saying you're halfway between equality and equitability? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think I'm more of the Rawlsian kind when it comes to these kinds of things. Yeah, that's Not fair entirely, enough. though. Dave, what about you? I'm more of a Rawlsian when it comes to fairness. Cool. And uh, Andy? Um, don't think I've had my mind yet. I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. That's all right, man. Have a think about it. We can always reference it later. Uh, awesome. Okay. I don't think there's really anything else we can say about justice as a form of fairness, is there? Not really. So our last one that we're going to be uh, discussing tonight is Nozick's entitlement theory, uh, which is people's ability to live their lives and trade freely without interference. Now, what does that sound like? Yeah, it sounds like libertarianism. That's what I said. (laughs) Yeah, I was saying you're correct. Man, I hope we don't have libertarian listeners because I'm going to get so much fucking hate mail for this season. To be honest, though, I mean, not many people have your address, Chris. I mean, you can give my email address for them if you want. Why would anyone do that? You never respond. That's a valid point. Pay the top tier Patreon and get Chris's email address. Uh, If you pay the top tier, I'll give you his physical address. (laughs) Pay the top tier, he'll give you access to the photos I sent him. Oh, And you do look awfully pretty in them. And anyway, shut up about my emails. I spent ages going through them, and now I only have about 1,200 unread ones in my inbox. (laughs) You don't just delete them all. That's kind of what I do. It took me two days to get down to that many. Okay, so on to Nozick. Are you guys familiar with the argument that taxation is slavery? I will fucking stab you. I've heard taxation is theft, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've heard taxation is theft, not taxation is slavery. Uh, do you want to expand on that a bit? Well, it, it basically amounts to the same thing, only the addition is when fruits of your labor are being stolen, you're basically, well, you're basically living in slavery. But and getting paid, so kind of not a slave. Shut up, you. <laughs> so yeah, that that's basically what it amounts to i guess uh, the point is that nozick thinks that you are entitled to the fruits of your labor and therefore also to do with the fruits of your labor what you want to do with them 
So, yeah, basically, you shouldn't be taxed, which is good news. Not exactly, but yeah. Shut up, you. (laughs) (laughs) Oddly, I I heard, and I don't know how well this stands up, you you know, there's a number of things that you hear when you're a kid and you don't question. And uh, sometimes when when you get older, you do question and you look them up. And something you said there reminded me of it. And it was one of the definitions of slavery is getting paid below minimum wage so technically say if the minimum wage in your country is 750 say and you were paid the equivalent of five an hour um then technically you would be a slave even though you were getting paid what about apprenticeships they're slaves as well yeah Ah, uh, yeah, but they're benefiting from the education. They they are learning on the job, so they they are that they're being paid not only in money but in kind. <laughs> All waiting staff. In I America. like to get paid in kind. Sorry. All waiting staff in America. Oh yeah, they generally don't get paid anything, or if they do, it's way, way, way below the minimum wage, which is why they yeah, expect twenty percent. Yeah, I mean that's why they get. They get uh, 20% tips as the standard out there. And they, you know, it, it could be really difficult as well at times because sometimes the restaurants are quite expensive. And then you're thinking a 20% tip on top of that bill. Bloody hell. Then that's why you get the uh, the waiters who are almost overly friendly and they tell you their entire life story and spend so much time with you. And you're just like, I just want to eat my food and maybe have a chat with my friends and family or, or whatever. Like, <laughs> back off but that's that they're so desperate for their tips because without their tips they can't eat that's why i like the phrase if you can't afford to pay all your staff a living wage you can't afford a business right so the, the point nozick really makes is, is one of individual liberty and what he basically says is that yeah that you you have the rights to the fruits of your labor but also your individual rights which need to be protected and who are going to protect your individual rights? Because without tax, you wouldn't have the police. Well, an untaxed government, I guess. <laughs> Dave, can you please explain this one? Yeah, how are the government being paid for? Sorry? Well, Nozick believes in the idea of what's called a minimal state. It's what he argues for in the book Anarchy, State, and Utopia. The idea is that the state exists only to function as a method of protecting individual rights and protecting people from outside invaders and inside invaders. And he's not wholly against taxation. Tax that goes to the government to pay for the protection of individuals is fine. The problem comes when you are forced to pay tax that goes to feed somebody else or goes to... I was just going to say, it's it's basically to oversee... Yeah. And yeah. protection. That's it. Yeah, basically. It's army, police, and that kind of thing. And paying tax for that is fine because you're giving money over to protect yourself. It's not taking from you to give to somebody else. Can we examine and that kind of thing a little bit more, please? How far does that stretch? So, okay, police, military, Fine. Firefighters, I suppose, fine. What about parking wardens? That's my parking space. If somebody else parks there, they should get a ticket. So should my taxes be paying for traffic wardens? 
Well, no, because you're not entitled to a parking space. You don't own an individual parking space. Those parking spaces are there as a communal property. Not on my estate, they're not. What happens <laughs> if someone decides to move into your living room? Yeah, that that's why you pay taxes for the police to okay. to you know to stop somebody from just moving into your living room. Hang on a second, I've got a dog crawling on my keyboard. And roads. Uh, how about roads? Yeah, that was where we're going. We don't need roads. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually a good point. In that one of the things that Nutic argues in the minimal state is that you directly pay your police, you directly pay for the fire services. Think of extreme privatization. So you have so your own personal. So he's basically an anarcho-capitalist with an army. Yeah, pretty much. I was, I was just about to say you have your own personal police. It, it... That's not going to end well, is no, it? No, sorry. At this point, it doesn't count as bribing the police. You're just giving them a tip. Yeah, you're basically paying private <laughs> security. On, on minimum wage. <laughs> so you're basically paying Blackwater to patrol your street? Something along that lines. Because that worked so well in Iraq. Aye, but he he will give a sort of concession to the idea that a government can run a police force and you pay taxes for that police force. It's simply a welfare state that he's against. It, it's an anti-Rolsian argument, basically. So would we say, you know, if, if someone... Um, so each individual would pay for their police and if they decided to have national health then everybody would pay directly to the national health rather than to government that then attributed funds to said national health or maybe you were just paid directly to so, uh, the hospital like, like a health insurance yeah something like a health insurance it would be against the nhs because somebody else who can't afford to pay might get treated on the fruits of your labor. Well, that's that's basically what I was going to come to next. I mean, what if someone got robbed, but they couldn't afford to, but they hadn't been paying their, their police bill? Would then the police just ignore them? Yeah, pretty much. So then you could have the same sort of thing with, you know, a national health service, a national health service like the police where you pay directly, but you get in there and they go, oh, well, you haven't been paying. So, you'd, you know, they turn you away. Yeah, something along those lines. The way he sees it is, imagine, say, the Rolling Stones. They play a concert and they charge a certain amount of money. You don't have to pay that money to go see them, but those who want to go see them are willing to pay that money. Now, they're entitled to every penny of that to take 10% of whatever they earned would be stealing from them because... Only you have the rights to the fruits of your labor, so to speak. So only the Rolling Stones have the right to the money that they make playing. And if you take that 10% and you then use that to pay for a kidney for a small child, um, you know, like a kidney transplant, then you have essentially created a system of slavery wherein they are working for that child who has had a kidney transplant i think they're confusing the word slavery with empathy that's libertarians but that's that's basically the argument it's sort of like a free ride argument imagine a public transport system 
where everybody has paid to get on, but one person has snuck on, they have behaved unjustly because they have got the benefits of something that everybody else has paid for. But it doesn't stop that thing from doing the same thing for the people who paid for it. Yes, that's an argument, but the service is to be paid for. And if you have snuck on without paying your dues, you have stolen that service. I feel guilty now. You want a train? Train jumper. They oh, they actually call it Black Rider here, which is fun. Racist. <laughs> a whiteboard isn't racist. What next? First Black, Black Pete. Now, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that that's essentially Nosek's argument. That Rose's argument is wrong because he is stealing the fruits of labor of other people and giving them to people less who didn't actually work for it and therefore creating a system of slavery and theft. So how does that work for things like roads? Say, for example, you're, you live in a cul-de-sac and there are 20 houses down this road and part of your responsibility would be maintaining the road generally. So that wouldn't go to the government because that would be tax, but you'd be paying into a kitty so that if work needed to be done, it would be paid for. But what if two of the houses decided, no, we don't agree with this. We're not paying for it. We don't care. We don't use the roads. We ride our bikes on the pavements. And then obviously the the company that would then fix the roads would go, well, no, the, these people aren't paying their dues, so we're not fixing the road. You would have to install one of those fancy roadblocks <laughs> with, with a guard there who would say like, no, you didn't pay, and present them with the bill. That is a libertarian idea in that there sh all roads should be toll roads. Every oh, single God, road right. has a toll road, really? <laughs> That's one of the ideas, unfortunately, or just leave it as a dirt track. Which is also, again, slightly anarcho-capitalist. A lot of the ideas are very similar, hence anarchy state utopia. And those are... Technically, all Very roads are tolls, by the way, because you get vehicle tax. Yeah, but there would be no vehicle tax in Nozick State. The road would be privately owned, and you would be basically paying a company, right? Yeah. Whoever owned the road, yeah, which is exactly what happened now. So when you bought a house, you would essentially be buying a section of the road as well. Or say, if you were renting a house on an estate, that road would be funded partly by your rent and kept by the housing association that you rent from. So tax with extra steps. Sort of. Would but this... direct payment rather than going to the government. I think that's the, the key difference. If you want the service, you pay for the service. If you don't want the service, you don't pay for it, but you do not get but it. But that's the thing. If it's coming as the road being part of your rent, that's still a tax. It's just taxing a different part of the money. But you are choosing where the fruits of your labor go. Would there be a minimum wage in this scenario? Not no. really, yeah. There is no government to enforce something like minimum wage. The idea is that if a company is paying too low, you just choose not to work for them. And therefore that forces them to raise the level of wage. And then you end up with the problem, well, people are coming from a worse off area 
maybe traveling a really long way to take that really low wage and then you end up going fuck well i've got nothing now they don't even have to travel some people will simply just say okay better than nothing yeah you're no it isn't exactly you're some people will essentially be forced into taking that job and accepting that very little wage so it doesn't really have the checks and balances that people think it does so we'll all be dirt poor miserable and starving and paying for every little thing and then people will say things like well it's your own choices you've made bad choices i made it in my life you could have done it in yours if you'd have made different choices it's all on you the thing is is that yeah, if you, don't like it, you won't hear that. those arguments because all the poor people will be dead. <laughs> they won't have anybody to have those but arguments that's kind with. Of what they want, which would be a kindness. It's really interesting <laughs> now that I've got a Fitbit thing. Watching every time we talk about libertarians, my heart rate go thirty-five above my fucking resting rate. <laughs> Uh, you should have seen the uh, conversation I had on Twitter with a porn star who clearly demonstrated libertarian behaviours. I'm okay, thanks. <laughs> I'm just thinking it would have sent your heart rate to the point where you'd have had a heart attack. So yes, you probably are okay not knowing about it. I just don't get it. It's so demonstrably fucking stupid. And I don't care if you cut that or I not. I think Chris is a libertarian. I think that one of the key problems with it is it shows a complete lack of empathy for your fellow human in their situation. I'm all right, governor. Starting. Yeah, exactly. It's I'm all right. Fuck everyone else. I mean, well, that's, that's... that's the thing. It's it's individual individual rights at the expense of everyone that aren't afforded the same opportunities. Yeah, but I guess we're just liberal scum that don't know anything, right? Fucking lefties, aren't we? It it just reminds me of one of my favourite phrases, and I've never been able to find who it's actually attributed to, but it's, when you're doing well, it's better to build a longer table than a taller fence. If you're doing good, help other people out who aren't doing so good, because you're still fine, but they're fucking not. Stop being a selfish cunt. But it's my money, fuck you. That reminds me of another quote I like. Long live the revolution. Long live the party. Long live the proletariat. Communist. Shh. I'll take fucking communism over libertarianism. Well, if we talk about this too much, we're going to uh, ruin our, our uh, chapter six about ideology. So maybe we should move on from uh, uh, various ideologies. <laughs> well, Notic is essentially the go-to argument for most libertarians. So it kind of ties in. It does. It was just that we were starting to break out into uh, socialism and communism. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting to note that Notzik actually changed his mind many years later and sort of disavowed a lot of what he originally argued. Let, let, let me guess. He needed a bit of help and suddenly realized that he was a bit of a cunt. <laughs> no, he didn't need the help, but he realized that his arguments were bad and selfish and wouldn't create a fair and just society. Fair play to him. Excellent. It's always good to hear that people can reassess their position and swallow their pride and admit they're wrong. And if more libertarians did that, the world would be a better place. Absolutely. So we've covered off a bunch of justice theories there. I suppose the last question we need to ask about justice, having moved on from what is justice and having a number of different answers, is 
how is justice actually used? Well, justice is typically used in, well, in all manner of life, actually. It's used to regulate the ingredients of certain products you use. It's used in uh, deciding how taxes are divvied up. And it's used in assessing what kind of punishment somebody should get for violating the law. Punishment and justice is a very, very tricky area and one I think we should have a in-depth discussion about at some point. You cross the line between vengeance and justice quite often, don't you? Personally, yes. Um, No, but yeah, that's <laughs> what I mean. But yeah, that's a whole podcast easily. I'm sure it is. We can always put that on the cards for next season or two. Okay, so justice can be used in a number of different ways. If we think about how governments in general operate, what form of justice do you think they mostly represent uh, it generally? Um, I think um, in, in what we call the West, mostly a combination between Rolsian and, yeah, some parts of Nozick's regrettably. I'd say that you could make an argument for what I would term narrow field welfare or utilitarianism, where they're looking out for the best of a smaller proportion of the populace than the whole. So maximising utility for the more well-off. <laughs> well, in some cases, that's that's the case. That's that's why I said that it's uh, a combination with Nozick. But we, we all live in countries where we've got reasonably good and communal health care, for instance. Yeah, uh, I suppose it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because I, I can see elements of Rawlsian justice in there, but equally, I don't think we're necessarily there yet. Definitely in places like America, you are not where, you know, it's still illegal for in some states for homosexuals to get married and things like that. And other parts around the world, in fact. And, you know, you've got the, the different abortion laws and all of that they're, they're not really making the right so i mean from state to state the 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 laws and the protections can be different in america so i think you're they're definitely more uh, of the uh nosix line of thought aren't they the uh, you know tie your bootstraps get on with it i'm okay you know you should be okay too it's your fault if you're not well when you're discussing the us you need to uh, take one thing into account Sorry for our American listeners, but it's just simply the truth. America is an ungovernable country. It simply is. It, you, you've got um, the federal government, which is supposed to be an overarching government, which can be sued by all the different states for different legislations. And then you've got the Supreme Court that is highly political, that, that simply says, like, this is not in accordance with the Constitution. It, it's ungovernable. What you're saying is we need to basically bulldoze the entire country and start again. Uh, preferably bulldoze the entire company, uh, country and never start again. <laughs> you don't need a bulldozer. Just wait for the massive fucking super volcano under fucking Yellowstone or where, wherever it is to go off. Then a tsunami to come over the top. Nice fresh coat of solidified lava. Uh, start from scratch. All good. To be honest, from the stats right now, 
from the stats right now, it looks like COVID-19 is going to be wiping pretty much all of them out anyway. Yeah, I'm not going to touch it. Trump's a cock. What? A mushroom cock. Uh, that's giving far too, much, far too much credit to his big head. <laughs> cool, okay. So is there any more questions or anything else we need to know about justice before we sign off for the night? I think we've covered all of that quite well. I understand lots of things that I didn't before. That's good. That's the point. It's There's nothing I can think of, really. Um, like Chris says, we've covered everything in pretty good detail. There, you know, there's lots of light little arguments for and against each thing. But the idea is to understand what the various theories are. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we can come back and examine justice in a more granular detail at a, a later stage, or maybe even when we summarize everything through these chapters in a final chapter, it might be worth addressing some of those arguments and maybe having a bit of a roundtable chat of what we think the best form of justice actually is. Cool. Uh, I, I mean, I think for anyone out there who wants to learn even the littlest bit about justice, starting yourself on SEP, their entry for justice is a good one. I'll include that and a bunch of other links to uh, things in the in the post. So if you're listening on Spotify or anything like that, go to answersinreason.com and find this, the episode notes. And yeah, there should be links at the, the, the bottom of it. Also, the Michael Sandel book I uh, I already referenced. Really go and buy that if you're interested in this, because it's a great book that uses uh, vivid real world real world examples of how different forms of justice works uh, work and have come to fruition. Awesome! Well, excellent. I've really enjoyed that. It's really enlightening. It's always good getting into things and, and looking at the nuance something that most people take for granted and to be quite simple something like justice uh, actually has so many different thoughts behind what justice actually is but listeners i would love to hear from you what do you think justice is let us know in the comments or via social media at twitter or facebook or whatever and we'll include some of those in the summary episode too on a personal note, Joe, have you read your bandies for political philosophy yet? No. Boo. I just can't Boo. I just can't believe we spent two hours talking about justice and we didn't once mention Batman. Batman's a vigilante fascist. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted. But also my favorite superhero. Yep. Lame. I mean, probably accurate, but still. Well, I think that wraps things up for tonight. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Martin, for taking us through all of that. And thank you, everyone else, for your contributions. You've been listening to Fresh Air, asking the question, what is justice? And I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. I'm Martin. I'm Chris. And I'm Andy. And I'm Batman. <laughs> A fashion. <laughs> Good night, all. Good night, all. Sweet dreams. Good night. <laughs>